0: As Rails applications evolve to meet customers' needs, they often grow in complexity, and even teams with the highest standards in code quality can face challenges. To help meet those challenges, ThoughtBot is hosting a rerun of our hit online workshop, How to Supercharge Your Rails App with a Code Audit. This workshop is taking place Thursday, May 28th, from 12 to 1 p.m. Eastern Time. During the workshop, a panel of distinguished ThoughtBotters will share ThoughtBot's best practices for auditing Rails code bases, improving your Rails app to speed up delivery times, and improve developer happiness, which as you may know, are topics Chris and I care about deeply. This workshop will also address identifying slow SQL queries, testing, refactoring problematic code, and leave you feeling empowered to level up your code base and improve your user experience. To register for this free online workshop, visit tbot.io slash code audit workshop or click on the link in the show notes. See you there! welcome to another episode of the Bike Shed. I am one of your co-hosts, Steph Carey, and today I'm joined by Armand Velasco, a fellow Thoughtbotter and a repeat Bike Shed guest. Erman, I am so excited you're here and welcome back.
1: Thanks, Steph. I really appreciate it. I always love uh, the opportunity to be in the Bike Shed. So thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. It's great seeing you and just sort of catching up. Uh, so how are you and how's your week going? Uh, it's going well.
1: Thanks. It's um a bit of uh, I think the same in my project which most people don't know what that is I wasn't here last week but yeah it's going well there's obviously a lot going on in the personal space for everybody right now and I am also part of that we're also trying to move so that's the thing I don't recommend it in the (laughs) current situation but uh, it's sort of out of necessity so there we are
0: that's a lot. I have I have a bunch of questions. Uh <laughs> I'm gonna start with the personal space first because that's my favorite. Yeah. I agree with you with everything that's going on and you're talking about some of the challenges and also how it's impacting you. Is there anything specific that you're thinking of in addition to like I imagine the challenges of moving while we also have COVID going on?
1: Yeah. I've seen it, you know, said by some you know, some people probably on Twitter, so I don't know if that actually means anything, but it resonates with me that having worked remotely before the pandemic and now working remotely now they're not the same thing it's sort of an encouragement to people who are doing this for the first time that you're not working remotely it's your it's a completely different thing with many people having childcare necessities and and things like that I'm certainly uh, part of that group so it feels very different it's just hard there's a lot of things going on not just the interactions between people but people's mental states and stuff like that so there's just a lot going on and um yeah it's I think that aspect was a shock because i thought oh everybody's going remote it's going to be great because i've been doing remote work and i've been wanting more people to do it but uh it's just it's just a really unique situation it's hard and so there's an encouragement there for people who are just figuring it out that it's you know you're not alone and it's it is different even for people who have been doing uh, remote work for a little while
0: I know you have been our remote guru in the office and the company When it, as it comes to the rest of us, as we're trying to follow in your footsteps and experience going remote and work efficiently remotely and also still feel connected to everyone. Hmm. Has it changed things drastically for you? Do you feel more connected that now that everyone else is also remote like you are?
1: Ooh, uh, yes. (laughs) It's almost, I'm ashamed to say it, but um, I should preface with, I think there are even more remote gurus than than I am. I've only been doing this for a couple of years, but there's people who didn't do it at ThoughtBot, but did it for previous companies. But yeah, to, to your question, it's almost like selfish, but I do feel more connected. Being remote changes the dynamics and the way people are forced to communicate. I know you mentioned in a previous bike shed about an attempt to use more Basecamp rather than Slack. I like Slack. I always liked how Thoughtbot uses Slack in particular, uh, which I think is different from many of the clients we work with. But even with me liking how we use Slack, I really, really like some of the asynchronous communication that Basecamp brings. Same with like Constable, which we have, and Trello, or any any of those things that we use um, that are a- more asynchronous. I really like that. And so having everybody do that asynchronous communication has been really nice. Just an example is that we have a weekly check-in of what did you do over the weekend that you'd like to share with your coworkers. And that just happened, right, because now everybody's remote. So people don't talk about that in the office, you know, like, what did you do this week or whatever? And that's really nice because now I get to be part of that. So that's just, you know, s- small things like that make a big difference. And I just, I really liked it. So, yeah. How are you liking it? I- I- I'm also interested to hear, like, I know you said you kind of like this remote shift uh, in a previous episode. And I know you've, you've had a-, a couple of episodes, right, of like maybe working a month remotely or something like that.
0: Yeah, I have dabbled with it just a bit. And also for that question that you're referring to, the one like, what have you done this weekend? I think that is also one of my favorites that I see each Monday morning as people are filling that out, because I do miss some of that just sort of social interaction of what passions do people have on the weekend? What projects are they getting into? And that mm-hmm. has really helped me stay and feel connected with everyone. I think you're the one that started that question for us. so <laughs> I appreciate that you started that to yeah. help us out. That's been really nice. And I have dabbled in the past with some remote work where I've done some traveling, uh, say if I was away from the office, I think the longest I've done before was for a month and then I worked remotely and it's gone well for me. I am in a special position where I I can focus on just work and just remote work. I don't mm. have other things that are in my life that I'm also taking care of or distractions. I don't have any like pets or children. So that has also helped with where I can be very focused on just the remote work uh, so that I'm sure that's very different than other experiences that people are having. So I, I am a fan of the remote work. I have found that I have more focus time. It's easier for me to focus and less distracted. I do miss some of the casual that you can just sort of like reach across the tables and get someone's attention and talk to someone. But then <laughs> yeah. it's also nice that it's a bit more thoughtful that then when you do get someone's attention, you've had more time to formulate the things that you want to talk about. So for me, it's it's been like a pretty big thumbs up. I really miss the rest of normal life. <laughs> but remote work in general has has been wonderful and I'm a big fan of it.
1: Nice, nice. To your point of like you miss some things. I I always tell people it's not like there's no trade-offs. It's not like it's all better and nothing is worse. You do miss some stuff. Or at least I agree with that. You know, I certainly miss a lot of aspects about the office. But that's that's really encouraging to hear. I hope you do more remote work. I would love it if you joined us a uh, full remote thought about it once this is all over I was going to ask do you feel any difference between the month you did of remote work before the pandemic and now
0: I think the big difference that I'm feeling is the role that I'm playing within the company. Mm. So when I was away for the month and I was focused just on myself and the fact that I was remote, and then also it was a different time zone. So that was a a bit challenging. So I was out in mountain time zone. So then Mm. I was waking up much earlier. So that way I could try to keep East Coast time. So that was challenging being in the same time zones much easier. And also now being in a slightly different role, since now you and I are both team leads, that has Mm. also shifted my perspective of where it's no no longer just to focus on me and what's going on in my world with being remote but also how is everyone else doing how is everyone else that I'm supporting how are they feeling so i think that's the main difference is it's not so much the remote situation that has changed but i think it's just my perspective of it that hmm. i am now more interested in how everyone else is feeling versus before it was it was just me and i was the only one that i was really having to think about
1: got it you mentioned that big that's a big change i think in our in our positions i'm curious how has the pandemic played out across the people who report to you.
0: Well, I'm going to back us up just a little bit, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. since that's a bit of new news, uh, <laughs> that's something that you and I can talk about, because I'm also excited to explore some of those topics with you as well and see how it's been going. So just to give a little bit of history here, um, you and I and John Schumann, were now team leads, Yay. which is exciting.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> And that's a new position here for ThoughtBot. We're a fairly flat organization and Team Leads is something that we introduced. We started it out as an experiment in the Mm -hmm. San Francisco studio with a goal of helping development directors work in a more sustainable way by sharing some of their responsibilities and most importantly, making sure that everyone on the team has access to -to day-to-day support. So that experiment went well. And then that means uh, that Team Leads are now an official role that's in the company uh, we've been in these new roles for about a month now. So yeah, kind of circling back to what you were just asking, I'm going to put you back on the spot and ask you how it's been going.
1: <laughs> yeah, sure, sure, sure. It's been going well. It's harder than I expected because I've been a team lead before, but in a very, I feel like it was a very different role. I sort of knew that going into it, uh, ThoughtBot, just because of the quality of the developers uh, we have here. And I should say I'm a team lead to only developers. I know there's the ideas about crossing disciplines, like team leads being able to do developers or designers and designers being able to be team leads and all this stuff. But I think right now is, you know, sort of within the, those vertical uh, structures. But uh, yeah, I mean, I expected it to be, what's the phrase? It's like riding a bike. Like if you haven't done it in a while, you just kind of get back on it and do it. Because I did it for a year before I joined ThoughtBot. But it's either the caliber of people or my perception of it or my going into it that is different. I think one of the things that has been difficult is learning to listen. I guess I always want to just fix things. So when someone tells me a problem, I immediately try to tell people, oh, well, what if we do this? And something that was very helpful in some of the training you and I had was understanding that, you know, the people who are reporting to us, they have all the context, so they probably have a better solution, right? 90% of the time than I would suggest. So just this term active listening, where you're listening and you're not just thinking of what you're going to respond with, but really like understanding where they're coming from and seeing like trying to dig into areas that need more digging into that maybe bring about different understanding and things like that. That's been really difficult. I'm just not used to doing that. It's really an exercise every one on one to do that. And it takes so much effort that is um, it's, it's pretty tiring, but it's also very rewarding.
0: I'm curious, what are the differences that you've seen between the team lead position that you had before and then how ThoughtBot has implemented team lead positions?
1: Yeah. In my previous position where I was a team lead, a lot of my one-on-ones were technical in nature. My team was made up of a lot of boot camp grads and people who were just sort of getting off the bat. So, like, I have this problem with code design or, you know, code structure. Or how might I do this better and that kind of thing. So those were in some ways easier to answer because there's more of, a, well, you know, why don't you follow this guideline? Like there's a more quote unquote correct answer, you know, that I could think of. In this case, there's a lot of consulting involved there's a lot of just working through things that none of us have encountered before because every client project is different you know you have a lot of dynamics with clients and it's not just that it's like how do we make sure we make we're successful with this client or also people sometimes can be very open here and it's not something i found before where there you know there's a lot of personal issues that come up that they want to talk about and so there's not like a one size fits all solution so that's why i find it so different and so Like both challenging and also rewarding when you do have a breakthrough and can see someone like figure out a great solution that I might not have even thought about, you know, so that that's been really nice. But yeah, sorry that your question was, what's the difference? And I think that's a big difference that the other one was more technical in nature. How do you feel about that?
0: I am uh, feeling pretty similar to you where I'm noticing That being an active listener versus trying to dive in and want to help people with anything that they're bringing up, if I have suggestions, and instead making sure that I am listening and asking good questions or helping them sort of like think through their own process. Because as you'd mentioned, we're already supporting and working with so many skilled developers and individuals that they often kind of know the approach they want to take or they want someone to sort of talk it through. And I'm there as a sounding board for them. And then I'm Mm -hmm. there when they want advice. I try to wait until they get to that space where they ask. And they say, well, what would you do? And go from there. I also really appreciate how we transitioned into this role. And I myself, uh, before I was a team lead and I was a developer and someone else was transitioning into being the person that I was reporting to and having my one-on-ones with, how we transitioned in those phases. So to give a concrete example, let's say that... John is my uh, manager, the person I'm having one-on-ones with, and I'm transitioning to you as my new one-on-one manager. Mm -hmm. If I'm meeting with John, then you would tag along for one of the one-on-ones and that observation role. And then for the next one-on-one, it would switch. And then you and I would talk and John would be in that observation role. So there's this nice transition period of where we're acclimating to that change and you don't just have to suddenly say bye to someone and all that context is lost.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I really appreciated that, too. Like you said, the context is really nice to carry over, even though it's only, you know, it's technically only two one-on-ones that both of them are in there.
0: I've also, uh, when you mentioned talking about the act of listening versus wanting to jump in and solve problems when something intriguing comes up, one of the things that I've carried forward with me for one-on-ones, I'm still finding out because this is very, like, customized to me and figuring out how other people view one-on-ones, what value they get from one-on-ones. Do they like structure? Do they like Mm. less structure? And one of the things that I always really liked from one-on-ones is for me, they feel like developer therapy where <laughs> I get to show up. And just talk about <laughs> everything that's going on that week or the past two weeks. Yes, I get to talk yes. through code if there's anything specific that's bothering me. I can talk through client challenges, personality challenges. And I have also really found that we have such a great like safe space. All the people that I've had as a one-on-one mentor, where I can talk to them also if I do have a personal problem or there's something that's conflicting with work and I'm looking for advice or how to handle that, that's something that I've always felt like I could bring to that space. And Chris used to be my one-on-one manager who I would talk with. And I used to joke with him that I'd show up and we have a couch in one of the rooms. And so I just lay down on the couch and be like, okay, I'm ready for (laughs) therapy session.
1: (laughs) Oh No, that's totally true, though. I I can relate. There were days when I would just walk into the one-on-one and he'd be like, so how are you doing? And I would just dive in and just talk for 30 minutes and say, I'm sorry, man, I didn't even like let you say anything you know other than like the questions and that kind of thing as i think about that now when you mentioned that i found it so valuable but when i'm in this position i always feel like in order to provide value i need to provide the solution i don't know if you feel that way whereas when i'm in a one-on-one, i found so much value of just having that sounding board
0: I have honestly learned to mimic the people that have taught me how to be like a good team lead. Mm. So when I'm learning how to be a good team lead myself, I always think back to the people who have been the person that I had as a manager and how did they behave
1: and I'm trying
0: to mimic a lot of the styles that I found really valuable from them and also just the honesty and asking people like where do they find value and what kind of structure would they like for Mm one-on-ones. That's been incredibly helpful for me because I've had one-on-ones before coming to ThoughtBot and they were always fine. Like they always went well, but I don't think they really felt like this incredible opportunity of where I get this amazing like 30 to 60 minutes, however long we've booked for this session with this one person that I very much value their advice and their experience and i get access to that
1: Mm -hmm. and
0: thoughtbot was the first place that i really felt that i had that excitement for a one-on-one so i've been trying to look back and reflect on what it was that was so great about those one-on-ones and then try to carry that forward for the next person because it's really it's their space like it is their time to shine and talk about what they want and get to just sort of bounce ideas and ask for opinions or maybe not just sort of like share whatever they're going through
1: Yeah. Do you have some examples of some of those reflections that have been really valuable or what are things that you have reflected upon, have seen very valuable that people have done and that you are applying?
0: Definitely. There's a couple that come to mind. Uh, So the first one, when I came to ThoughtBot and I was having one on ones with Josh Clayton, one of the things that he did for me that was wildly helpful uh, was that we would pair on code together. So I was on a client project where at a time I was by myself on that as Mm -hmm. a ThoughtBot developer on that project. I was working with other client developers, but it was just me as a ThoughtBot person that was there. So I would have questions about like, how would a ThoughtBotter approach this particular coding problem? And so we would spend a number of our one-on-ones just either talking through code and different design patterns. And that was wonderful. And it was that sort of customization of what is Mm -hmm. it that I need that week or every two weeks to feel supported in my role and to feel successful. Yeah. Another fun one came from Matt Sumner and how much he has tried to enlighten us with the idea that awkward silence is good, (laughs) (laughs) which is hard. (laughs) But giving people that space to talk and not feeling that silence. Otherwise, it's just easy. Like we keep talking and then we may take the person in a totally different direction than they wanted to go. So the awkward silence has been really helpful And then I guess I'm going to pull one from each person. And then with Chris as well, uh, Chris is very direct. And I also really liked how much he shared in return with me. So it felt like a a Mm. nice exchange of back and forth of where we would talk about things that I'm going through. But then he would also be able to share some of the things that relate to and sort of share his experience and guidance and how he's approached those problems. So I've also really appreciated the down-to-earth nature of the Mm. one-on-one.
1: Those are awesome. Thanks for sharing those. I appreciate that.
0: How about you? Any tips from team lead to team lead? Uh,
1: Actually, something that I learned from asking for feedback, uh, you got to be careful asking for feedback because people might actually give it. (laughs) And, And one of them was I was trying to do the awkward silence, not intentionally, obviously, but I was trying to go with a mindset of I want the one-on-one to be completely on what they want to talk about, you know. So I want to go into the one-on-one and just say, "How are you doing today and whatever's on their mind, that be the thing we talk about." You know, let the air hang there with, with the awkward pauses. So I did that in uh, one of my 1st 101s. and at the end I said, "Hey, if you have any feedback, please let me know." So the feedback was come more prepared <laughs> because <laughs> <laughs> they wanted more structure because it was just completely unstructured, and it was just awkward <laughs> so I had to tell them that uh you know I was intentionally trying to do that, but at the same time, I realized that I think I took it too far, and so ever since I have been trying to communicate more about this structure that I have in my mind and let them know that's the process that i'm that I'm trying to go through, but we can always do whatever they prefer, you know this is their time uh that kind of thing, but having a little bit of structure, I think helped. And then I communicated that to everybody I'm having one-on-ones with. And I think it helped with understanding, you know, having setting an expectation of like, I can go in here and talk about whatever I want. Because that's the first part of my structure is if you have any pressing things, Let's talk about him, whatever you have, and then have a couple of other steps. But I think that would be my tip.
0: Don't take the awkward silence too far.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And have a little bit of structure that you have communicated so that everybody's on the same page and they don't just think you're there floating around and and not saying anything. So
0: (laughs) That is really hard to sort of like give that quiet space for someone to bubble up a thought but not make it so like painfully, socially awkward that then <laughs> that you don't know what's happening in that moment and why the other person isn't talking to you. So yeah, it sounds like a, a special art form to have to master. Yeah,
1: I think it depends on the person too. And I think that's also uh, something that I'm trying to learn is part of the, the role is getting to know these people and learning what you know, what they like, what they don't like, you know, how they receive feedback, how they receive praise, how they like to talk, you know, all of those things I've realized make for very unique and individually tailored one-on-ones. And that's also something I'm trying to improve. It's, It's really hard, but that's where I'm at.
0: I'm with you. All of that resonates with me. Today's episode of The Bike Shed is sponsored by Datadog, a monitoring and analytics platform for cloud-scale infrastructure and applications. Datadog's machine learning-based alerts, customizable dashboards, and 400-plus vendor-backed integration unifies disparate data sources and makes it easy for teams to pivot between correlated metrics and events for faster troubleshooting. Try Datadog free by starting a 14-day trial and receive a free t-shirt once you install the agent. Visit datadog.com slash thebikeshed to get started today. So changing gears just a bit away from team leads, you alluded to me earlier that you have a passion project going on outside of work, and I'm excited to dig into that.
1: Yeah, sure. So if people have listened to episodes of The Bike Show where I've been on, they might know that I really like Elixir. And one of the things I've been working on is a book slash tutorial slash course for test driven development with Phoenix and Elixir. We have Upcase, and we have really good TDD material there for Rails, and I think there's a fundamentals course there. But the idea came from there, and I wanted to create a course like that. But two years ago is when I first started thinking about this, and there just wasn't a whole lot of movement on Upcase, and we couldn't find the time. And it would have taken a lot of time from Tom, (laughs) frankly, because editing video is, I think, time-consuming. So I decided to postpone it. Oh, one other thing is it's really hard to record videos with kids in your house. There's just a lot of noises uh, or audio for that matter. So because of those constraints, I decided to maybe make it a book and I just started writing and, you know, started building that. So I have a first draft of that. It's not published anywhere yet. It walks through building a regular chat app with Phoenix and, um, you know, test driven development. It's really BDD, which is something I've been doing for quite a long time. And yeah, the reason why I wanted to write this is because test-driven development and refactoring have been two of the practices that have really dramatically changed my career really. And I had the tremendous opportunity and I was very fortunate to be able to attend a TDD course with Josh Clayton back when they used to do them live at ThoughtBot. That's when, when I first got introduced to TDD and it was amazing. And that, that really changed a lot of how I practice code and just how you think about building software. So I wanted to sort of pay that forward.
0: When you took that course with Josh, were you writing Rails at the time? Had you already started Elixir? I'm not sure when you really started diving into Elixir and it became one of your favorite languages.
1: Yeah, no, I was definitely writing Rails. I've been writing Elixir for maybe three years and uh, practicing TDD for six and a half. I, I, start, I learned TDD very early on. I think some people say don't do it because it's a, a completely new skill they have to learn. But at the same time, I think it's helpful to learn it if you don't have to unlearn like your normal workflow, right? So this becomes your normal workflow.
0: Yeah, testing feels like one of those, it's very true. Like it is a hard new skill to learn and it's something that will take time and practice and seeing how other people write tests to become really efficient at it. But it's one of those skills that it's going to pay off dividends. So every ounce that you're investing into getting better at writing tests is going to help you feel better about your code. And I just feel like it's one of those skills that regardless the fact that it takes extra time, 100% worth it. always would advocate for learning that skill. I'm so excited you're writing a book. I'm also really impressed. Anytime (laughs) someone tells me they're writing a book, I just feel a bit in awe because that feels like such a lofty task.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Yeah, it's... uh... (laughs) I agree. Like every time I, see, I hear someone writing a book or has written a book, it it amazes me. But it has it has been a goal of mine for quite some time to write a book. So that's why I wanted to start this. And I also decided as part of this that I would do it for the joy of writing and rewriting and learning to enjoy the process because, you know, it's not going to make me money because I'm going to put it free online. So it's not for that reason. But I think you have to enjoy the process. So that's kind of why, why I'm trying to do it. And who knows when it'll go out, right? Like it's uh, it's one of those things. But... Thank you. It's it's quite a challenge.
0: <laughs> how are you approaching writing a book? Like what are you using to store all of your thoughts? Have you had thoughts around how you're going to publish it? I'm really intrigued into the mechanics of how you're going about this.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, as a developer, I just went with Git, like that's what I do. So I started writing it, I have a Git repo, and the nice thing about this is that it's more of a tutorial, like it's a book that builds an application as you go along, so a lot of the writing revolves around how we're building the application. The first chapter right now, after the introduction, is a little bit on the why and the how and the what TDD and BDD are. So that is a little bit different, but that's kind of like writing a blog post where you're like, okay, I want to explain why I think this makes sense and setting up a little bit of the book. The rest of the writing follows pretty closely just building the application. There are certain steps, like the first time we do refactoring, there's a lot of explaining as to what refactoring is, why we want to do it, how to do it, that kind of thing. So that had to take a little bit more thought. But this first draft, a lot of it, especially towards the later chapters, were about making sure I could get an app that works. My intention is to go back over the entire thing and rebuild the app so that I make sure that every code sample works. And then also, you know, once again, go back and actually write language that makes sense and sort of follow through with. I'm hoping to make it a little bit more than a tutorial so they understand the why behind many things, not just the how and how it benefits them, how to keep practicing, because I think TDD is a lot about practice and that kind of thing. As far as your question about publishing, I did submit like a proposal idea, never a formal proposal to pragmatic programmers, but they have an Elixir book on testing that has some overlap, is what they said. I, you know, I, I didn't obviously didn't get insight into it, but that's why they didn't feel like comfortable taking it. So... My idea is to just make it into a website that's free and maybe at some point might use uh, LeanPub if people want the PDF version or the Mobi EPUB version of the book. But that's sort of where where I'm at right now.
0: Awesome. I feel like I've heard of something called GitBook. Is that something that you've heard of or looked into for publishing?
1: It sounds familiar, but I don't know anything about it to, to speak intelligently about it. So I haven't really looked into that. Is that just using Git and publishing it as a website?
0: I think so. Mm. I think you just captured it. Uh, you get to use Git. So you're still writing in the way that you feel comfortable and saving all your changes. And then there's essentially an easy way to then publish it. And it might be through GitHub. I'm not sure how that works. Mm. But it just came to mind when you're talking about the different potential ways to publish it and do it in sort of like a a low maintenance way that it's easy to ship off and share with the world. Do you have a particular like goal that you're looking for? Like, do you know when you've decided that this will be done and it's ready to share with the world?
1: Sort of. I have an MVP version of it that I want to share with the world just so it's out there and I don't chicken out from <laughs> from sharing it with the world because I very frequently have the thought of like, why am I writing this? Nobody's going to read it. But so I want to put an MVP out there. And the MVP is basically a completed first draft that is fully functional, that someone could go through and um, enjoy it, but it's not going to be the most polished writing. So I'll publish that on the website form. I won't do the lean pub stuff yet for that kind of version. I would only do it for the final version. But that would be when I know my first step. And then writing is never finished. So at some point, I'm just going to go through it many, many times and then decide it's done. I do have some vision for adding some chapters. So I'm using Phoenix 1.4 and Phoenix 1.5 just came out. There's some things I could refactor to use Live View, which is anything Phoenix came out with. And so that would be really interesting. And I think a lot of people would like to see test-driven development with Live View. So that's an idea of something that could either go before I fully publish it or go in like um, version two of the book, if you will. I'm still not sure if I'm going to do that, but I imagine people would like to see that.
0: That is one of the challenges that's always been daunting to me about writing a book that's using a specific language and specific framework and the versioning and how do you handle when there's updates and then do you invest time into updating the book so that it matches the new released versions or is it sort of like this is just more of an example and it doesn't really matter if this is now out of date because it's really more about the process and everything else that you're going through and it feels like it it has this opportunity to become more of a subscription versus this one-time Publication of a of content where mm. people are subscribing to. I really enjoyed your first book of work. I would really like to see more of it as things are evolving, and then how to keep up with the the shifting landscape. How do you feel about those challenges?
1: <laughs> I feel terrible about those challenges. <laughs> oh no! I, I no. no I, I, I take it all back. Then <laughs> <laughs> I agree that they're, they're daunting. I I just don't know that I know a solution. Other than investing time into that kind of thing, my thought right now, which is not backed by any actual labor or hard work, is that I will update it for Phoenix 1.5, potentially include a live view section, like I mentioned, maybe, maybe an appendix of like refactoring to live view or something like that. But I don't know that I would continue going forever. I think it depends if, you know, at that point, it is something that if people are really reading it and love it, maybe it's something that I enjoy updating and keeping up to date, especially if there are breaking changes. Like if someone can follow through the thing and it's basically the same without any breaking changes, then I'm not sure I would update it past Phoenix 1.5. But if there were breaking changes and there was something that people really loved, like Mike Hartle's tutorials for Rails, uh, for those who don't know it, but it was free online for a long time, I think. And it was something that many, many people read and it was very valuable to so many people, myself included. So if it were as valuable as something like that, I think I would be happy to keep updating it to the newer versions and making sure it works and that kind of thing. But I don't have a grand plan to how to make that uh, less painful than it sounds.
0: It's also one of those, I imagine, one of those good problems to have. And since that you wrote something that people really enjoyed and now there's a new version and they're requesting that the existing content be revised or there be new content that covers like the new versions that are out there and the true consultant developer space that feels like one of those, we'll think about it when we get there. And if we have that problem, like that's that's a good problem to have.
1: Right, exactly. It's like, oh, there's there's a market fit there. I have also thought of making it into sort of a workshop so I can then understand the kinks and the things that people have problems with to write a better book and I'm curious because I haven't done this but I know you've taught some classes so I'm curious if you have insights or learnings and correct me if I'm wrong but you've taught intro to web development a few times and I'm curious how you go about doing that have you found it worth the effort because I imagine it's a lot of investment to create that kind of course and have you done it remotely
0: So as I'm sure you're aware of, since you're writing a book, creating content is hard. (laughs) Yes. It takes a pretty grand effort of time to get that content. And then also, as you'd mentioned, writing feels like it's never done and you can always go back and tweak it. I think one of the main things I've learned from teaching a class, and yeah, you you were 100% correct, where I've taught an intro to web development class a couple of times in a, a few different spaces around the Boston area. And it's very hard to get mm. feedback from folks. Oh, I really? didn't realize that would be so challenging. But I have found that when I have taught classes and then I would ask for feedback, uh, perhaps I would send out a form and an email, and it just, I always kept it short to maybe four questions to ask them a few questions about the class. And even then I would reduce it after that to where I would focus on the, did you enjoy the class? What did you wish this class covered that it didn't? And what other topics would you like to see taught?
1: Mm-hmm. So I would
0: try to make it very specific. So it was easy to answer. I also started budgeting time during class to fill out the form. Cause I knew uh, if I emailed people <laughs> afterwards, I wasn't likely to get a response. Makes but sense, if yeah. we took a like five, 10 minutes during class to do that, then most people would then submit the form, which was wonderful. So I think that would be one of the interesting challenges is given the workshop that you're putting on, who you're doing it with and how you're going to collect feedback, since that's Mm. one of the predominant goals is understanding how people felt about it is really thinking through how to help people give you feedback.
1: Got it. Thank you. That's interesting. And I partially because I'm lazy, but partially because I'm remote, I I would like to do it remotely. So that seems uh, pretty tough to do because an email afterwards would have been my first inclination. But it makes sense what you're saying that. It's much better in person if you can tie it into the class.
0: Uh, well, for the, the remote bit, what I would do there. So you've hosted a workshop that we've had through ThoughtBot recently, one of the uh, workshop that was focused on how to do remote work or how to stay connected with people while remote. Mm-hmm. So during that workshop and then during the um, I'm not sure if there was a similar setup, but during a workshop uh, that I gave a while back that was talking about making your application compliant for healthcare regulations. One of the really clever ways that uh, we were getting feedback from people that were attending the workshop is there was like a pop-up that you could have on the individual screen. And then it was a click sort of a quick answer, like a little modal that would show up with your question. And then it would have some ways that you could respond to it. And then that feedback was immediately submitted to whoever was hosting the workshop. So if you were doing something similar for your workshop, I Mm. think you could interstitial some of those questions throughout the workshop. So you could go through the first, however long your workshop is you could go through the first 30 minutes and then stop for a question and then people are engaged in that moment it's very fresh so then hopefully folks would then just do the easy thing and click on a response and then that would help you collect lots of feedback throughout the workshop versus perhaps waiting to the end to then send out an email and say hey come back and give me feedback
1: that's a great idea thank you i will use something like that if i do this online i think that's a that's brilliant i think Programming workshops are particularly difficult because I'm assuming people have to follow along with the instructions. How did you manage a class? I don't know how big your classes were, uh, but how do you manage everybody keeping up to speed and also being able to cover the whole material?
0: So some of it was a bit easier for me being intro to web development. I feel like that lowered some of the barriers of all the applications that folks needed to have installed and then having a specific environment since it was pretty friendly to any environment that they were using. We really just needed a text editor and then access to a browser.
1: Hmm. Uh,
0: I did even get more specific where I would ask everyone to use the same browser. Uh, I was suggesting that we all used Chrome because then that also removed some hurdles where If folks didn't know where to click, I could just show one demo of how to do this in Chrome. And then it it was easy for everyone else to follow along. And then honestly, TAs, in in my specific case, which doesn't help for the remote scenario (laughs) that you're thinking about, for the in-person, having TAs was... Wonderful because then I could go through the material and I was very vocal with people that if you have questions, you know, please raise your hand, someone will help you. I would try to pause if someone was stuck on something so I wouldn't go too far ahead. It is challenging that if you're trying to keep everybody together. Uh classes usually ranged anywhere from seven people up towards about like eighteen people.
1: Mm, wow. And
0: trying to keep that big and that diverse of a group, because some people had some experience, some people like they may have not touched a laptop in a couple years. And this was all new to them. Right. It was an interesting challenge. And I think it's one that you just have to do all the prep work that you can to try to keep everybody on the same environment and system and run all the same checks. And then I don't know how you do that with a remote. I have some way that like, can you have remote TAs? That would be wild. That would be cool. (laughs) Someone that can like have like a breakout Zoom session if you're stuck and help them on something. Yeah. And then I think the other default is you may just have to demo some of it. And if they do get behind, if there's like a GitHub repo or something else they could go to, they could follow the steps there. So right. if they truly get stuck and their system just isn't cooperating, they can still watch what you're doing and then circle back and complete the exercises later.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I would do that for sure. The Having a Git history and be able to check out a tag or something so that they can uh, catch up to the class. But I like the idea of a breakout session, too. That might be breaking out into groups, People can help each other and maybe having TAs if I can have that luxury.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I think that would be interesting, the Zoom breakout, because then you could take like a 10 minute break and then have like a Zoom breakout and say if you need a TA during this 10 minute break, like go ahead and grab them now. So that way they could try to get caught back up. And yeah, I think the other approach I did do um, when I was doing a tutorial, we were creating a Christmas card with JavaScript. So there was a Christmas card on the web page with snow that was falling and it was a just a fun side project that I was walking some people through. And on GitHub, I had all the steps listed out. So if some people either didn't bring a laptop or couldn't necessarily follow along with each step, then they could choose to do it on their own. And that seemed to work really well, because it alleviated some of the stress that people felt like they needed to write everything down. And I was like, Mm -hmm. just watch the code, ask questions, just chat with me, be here, be present, because then you can go back and look at this later.
1: That's a good point. You know, relieving that stress and people being able to get the most out of it if if it means just watching it now and doing it later.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm excited that you're thinking about this. I think that's a, a really great idea to do like a workshop so then you can get feedback on the content. I have noticed some other folks when they're writing books, they'll even publish like a first chapter or two. I think that's really cool to sort of like start gauging interest and getting feedback and... I imagine alleviate some of the creator stress where you don't have to build this big, wonderful thing. You get to build this okay, small thing and get feedback on it.
1: Yeah, I could have had a better MVP, I guess I should say, than a whole book uh, finished, uh, even if a first draft. The part that scared me about writing a single chapter is that I would have felt like I have to write, I have to really get the first chapter correct, which actually is probably important since most people will only read the first chapter and if it doesn't capture their interest then they might drop off so uh, even as i'm saying this i'm having to reconsider maybe that is actually something that i should focus some time into to make sure that at least the first chapter can grab attention and yeah, at that point i guess i could publish the first chapter separately so that it's a concrete piece that that's out there that that's not just like a landing page right so i didn't want to do that i didn't want to just put a landing page or something like that and uh capture emails that way i don't even know if i want emails so cool that's (laughs) yeah
0: yeah uh well and it's also your book so uh it is totally whatever works best for you
1: (laughs) i just want to get it out there before i chicken out (laughs) it's too easy to to convince myself that nobody will read it and so i don't need to do it but i'm so far so far along now i just want to put it out there
0: that's the great thing about podcasting we show up we talk and then tom makes us sound great and it just goes out into the ether and it's done (laughs) we can't edit it we can't change it at least i can't tom can
1: (laughs) i need a tom for my book
0: yeah Oh, so one other thing I wanted to highlight—something that you have brought into my world that I'm excited about—that uh, you're probably not aware of because it was something that you shared on Twitter. But I'm really excited to start using it more and leveling up with it—is Vim Fugitive. Oh, nice! It's something that you tweeted about, and there was a particular uh, functionality that you were really excited about. Is that something that you've been using a lot of recently? Yeah. What are what are your thoughts on Vim Fugitive?
1: Many thoughts on Vim Fugitive. First, it's awesome. You should go try it. Anybody who uses Vim should be using uh, as many Tempo plugins as you can find online. But Vim Fugitive is particularly amazing. I don't remember what I tweeted, but I definitely use it all the time. And the, the nice thing about Vim is that I haven't hit a point where I'm getting diminishing returns or anything like that. Just every time I find more and more things that are so helpful for my workflow. And so it has some like really nice things with Git. And if I remember correctly... What I might have tweeted about was the fact that you can visually select a block of text and do a um, G browse on Vim Fugitive, and it'll open up GitHub with that particular blob, so like the permalink with that text highlighted. And that's just so helpful because when I'm talking to people in Slack or in a pull request or anything like that, and I want to refer to them to a particular piece of code, my previous workflow would be to look at the file name, go to GitHub, press T type in the file name, navigate to the file type, go to the little place, click on the lines that I want to highlight, click on the triple dots, say permalink, because I don't know if this is going to change. And then my link's going to be old. So like permalink that and then send it. Whereas now I can just do that in my code editor and it works perfectly. And it's amazing. I've also used other tools in Vim Fugitive with like, if you check your git status while you're trying to reconcile a rebase and you fix the issues with the rebase, you can like g write. So it's they're, they're EX commands, if the, uh, that's what they're called. You're in Vim's command line mode, which means you've pressed colon, so you're entering into that little command line, because it doesn't translate in podcast, um, in audio. But if you do colon g status, for example, right, that's the command. And so if you're looking at the files that are unstaged because of a rebase issue, and I've been doing this a ton lately, once you fix the commit issues, you can just do a g write, And that's basically uh, staging the file. So it has so many nice little things uh, like that that are so good. And there's also, I don't really use this that much because I always get confused with the keys, but you can do a diff split. You can take a look at the diffs, uh, just like you wouldn't get a G diff split. So it's all the G prepended. But yeah, it's got a ton of those. So have you used it yet, Steph, or not yet?
0: So I realize I've been using it, but I just didn't realize that it was Vim Fugitive that I'm using under the hood because I have the ThoughtBot.file. So I have it already in my environment. And then I also have my own slightly altered customized version of the ThoughtBot.files. So I've been using Gblame. So that's one that I've been running. If I wanted to look at like the history, see if there's a helpful commit message to go along with a particular line of code. Oh, and yeah. now that I realized that's part of them Fugitive. And it was exactly the command that you just mentioned that you tweeted about the G browse that got me re-interested in learning some of these other helpful commands. And it's a small one, but I love how you just detailed like all the different steps you take to do that one action. <laughs> yes. Because those are the exact same steps that I take. And then also there's like the G delete, which I'm excited about. And that's such a small thing, but there's a file I want to delete. Then I was um, already in my terminal, but I'd open up a new tab and run like git remove and then the name of the file. And it's quick and it's simple. But then I saw G delete and I was like, oh, I don't, I don't have to leave Vim. Like I can just do this here. And that's so much better.
1: Yes, yes. There's also G rename, which will not only update the file name, but it also update the name of it in your buffer, which is a big thing in Vim because otherwise you have to close the buffer and open up. With the new file name. Yeah, no, great stuff in there. Love that plugin. And the GBLAME that you mentioned is also one of my favorite commands that comes with it.
0: I think you wrote a blog post that talks a bit about the GBLAME or some of the, <laughs> the, the Vim yes. Fugitive tooling
1: yes yes uh it 's I forget the title of it. I thought it was very clever. It was about something about blaming others, <laughs> but it was just about writing better commits. It was sort of a workflow uh tip also you know people who write really good commits tend to do so because they tend to read commits a lot. When you read a lot of commits, you want to make sure there 's good commits written. But I think people don 't do that because doing git blame is not a nice experience, usually, but if you use vim fugitive it 's a phenomenal experience you G blame you go to the commit shot and you can press like capital K or O and it opens that commit in a new paint. So it's, it's phenomenal. So yes, thank you, Tim Pope.
0: Perfect. Yeah, I'll make sure that we include a link to that blog post in the show notes because I remember it being very helpful. That's probably when I started using Gblame it was after reading that particular post. So it's been super helpful and I'm really excited to check out some of the other commands and incorporate those into more of like my daily habits. Well, on that note, I think it's about time for us to wrap up. Shall we wrap up? Yeah, let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at Bikeshed.fm. This show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or review in iTunes as it really helps other people find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore Bikeshed or reach me at S. Fikari on Twitter or host at Bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to the bike shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye! Bye. <laughs>